The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bible now, if you would, and open them to Matthew chapter 16. This evening we begin a new series of lessons on the doctrine of the church. It's been almost 10 years since I last did uh, any type of comprehension or comprehensive teaching, I should say, on this particular subject. Uh, I, of course, mention the church often during our sermons. I mean, I can't hardly help doing that. So I mention it a lot, and we talk about a lot of different things concerning the church. But it's been a long time since we took this doctrine by itself and just looked at this uh, and made it the central focus of the message. I started thinking about doing a series on the church when we came to Matthew 16 in our study of the book of Matthew. And we came to the 18th verse in which Jesus declared the founding of the church. And there he said, Upon this rock I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, that was after Peter had made his confession in verse number 16 in response to Jesus' question. Jesus asked him, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I started thinking about doing this series at that time when we looked at those verses. But what I didn't want to do was interrupt the flow of our study in the Gospel of Matthew and So I decided that we would just push that aside for a little bit and not talk about the church. But then we came into the 18th chapter, and uh, that happened just a few weeks ago, and particularly what we're studying now on Sunday mornings, and will be for the next few weeks, uh, we're studying about church discipline. And I mentioned today that there are only three places in the gospel accounts where we find mention of the church. The first one is there in Matthew 16, 18. The other two places are in Matthew 18:17, the scripture that we looked at this morning. And besides that, you don't find the church mentioned in any of the, of the other gospels. But we do know that the church is looming large behind everything that takes place there because Christ called out his apostles and made them the foundation of the church with himself being the chief cornerstone. And we find that teaching in Ephesians chapter 2 in which the Apostle Paul said, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord. And so we have these mentions of the church in Matthew But at the same time as we were looking at that, I was also getting these questions about church discipline, about the history of the church, about the perpetuity of the church, about evangelism in the church, and we're going to talk about all of those things. And uh, uh, Somebody was asking me about the identifying marks of a true church, and so I started to put all of that together, and I think the Lord was telling me then that what I really needed to do was for us to speak comprehensively on the doctrine of the church. And so I begin this series tonight with what I think is a mandate from the Holy Spirit and perhaps also from the people of God that I do need to teach on the church. Now, sometimes I get suggestions 
about what I should preach. That, that happens quite often. People, we'd like for you to preach on this, or you preached on something we didn't want you to preach about, so we learned that you preach on this. And so I get suggestions, and I'm often very resistant to suggestions about what I should preach. But here's a case where things just came together, and it became so overwhelming that I just felt I have nothing else to do. I have to tackle the doctrine of the church. And so we begin this study tonight, and you need to be careful what you ask for, because, as you know, we, we don't usually take a subject and just take a cursory glance at it. But rather, we like to try to exhaust it if we can. And I don't know, uh, well, I do know, I should say, I can't exhaust the subject of the church, but you may be exhausted before we get finished with it. So it'll take us a little while to get done. Now, I want to call your attention once again to Matthew 16:18. Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That tells us that Jesus started something. He started something that was new. It's not something that you read about in the Old Testament. It's something that the disciples, when Jesus told them this, they didn't know anything about it. In fact, in their studies of the Old Testament, they were not aware that there was this time period that was coming upon them a time when there would be a break in the look for the coming of the kingdom of the Lord. And at this time, Jesus would establish his church in the world, and his church would be here until the time that he comes again. So what we have as the church begins is an interlude in the establishment of the kingdom of God upon the earth. And that interlude is what we call the church age. It's a time that stretches all the way from the disciples that we're reading about in this particular passage to this present hour in which we live, and then all the way until the time that Jesus comes back from heaven. Jesus began a church. Now, later on, we're going to look at the meaning of the Greek word that's translated as church. Uh, Why do we have this word in our English New Testament? And although the church itself was new, The word that Jesus used to describe it was not new. And we're going to look at that and see how that the disciples would have taken the meaning of this word church in the ordinary sense of the word that it was given. Now, tonight, though, I'd like to give you just a little bit of an overview of the true New Testament church. Now, much of what I have to say to you tonight will be developed in other lessons as we go on. But when Jesus made the statement, upon this rock I will build my church, he spoke words that were of vital importance. And these were very important because what Jesus did when he said that was he gave God's plan, God's program for the world for these past 2,000 years. And as I said a moment ago, we'll continue until he comes again. And so this was begun by Christ. He was the one that is responsible for it. And the church itself was started by Jesus to be responsible to do God's work that we find described in the New Testament. And so it's vitally important for us to understand what it is that Christ did and what he intended when he began the church. There are many groups that claim that they are the church of the living God. But we know that many of them don't agree with each other, and more importantly, they don't agree with the Word of God. And so we have to go to the Scriptures to find out what is the true church. We need to make sure that we understand what the right church is, because certainly we want to be in the church that Jesus founded. Now, in Article 13 of our church statement of faith entitled, Of a Gospel Church, we affirm this following statement. We believe in a visible church 
under the headship of Christ, which is a congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel, exclusively vested with the authority to observe the ordinance of Christ, governed by his laws and exercising the gifts, rights and privileges invested in them by his word, that its only scriptural officers are bishops or pastors and deacons whose qualifications, claims, and duties are defined in the epistles to Timothy and Titus. Now, that's what we want to look at tonight. What is a true church? Well, first we would have to say that a true church must begin with Christ. Now, that seems to be a very obvious statement. Uh, It should be a given to us that if Jesus is the author, if he is the founder of this religion that we call Christianity, then wouldn't we want to be members of the church that he built? But as obvious as that might seem, there are millions of people that are quote-unquote Christians that are spread all over the world that are not members of the church that Jesus personally founded, not the one that he organized. And so there has to be some sort of scriptural evidence that we can go to to show us exactly what is it that this church was that Jesus started, what did they believe, and what did they do. And if we can determine what that evidence is and understand what the meaning of that evidence is, then we'll know whether we are in a true church, whether this church, one like the one we attend tonight, is a church that Jesus built. Now, in studying the doctrine, we can go to the Old Testament And there we find some typology that tells us that Jesus personally would build his church. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a temple, and that was the place where God met with his people. And any time that the children of Israel wanted to be in the place where God made a special manifestation of his presence, then they would travel to the temple that was in Jerusalem. And there were special feasts that went on there, and there were different times of worship, and people would gather around the temple, and there they knew that they were in the presence of God. Well, in the New Testament, we have a similarity. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a place where God meets specially with his people. And although we do have Christ living in us, he's in us in the person of the Holy Spirit, yet the church is a place where we corporately meet together for fellowship, and here is a place where we experience in a way... Uh, that we don't experience any place else, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit with God and his people. So this is a very special sense in which we meet with God. The hub of activity that goes on for New Testament worship takes place in the Lord's church. Now, again, it is true that you as a child of God, you are a believer priest. And so that means that you can meet with God, that you can pray with God, that you can feel fellowship with God, that you can be with God no matter where you are. And that's because you do have the Holy Spirit that's living in you. But there's also the church that the Lord started. And there's a corporate body that comes together, that assembles together. And there the Holy Spirit of God is with us in that sense. As I said, he's with us in no other way. Now, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul said that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, you'll recognize that the Apostle Paul used that phrase in two different ways. In chapter 6, he talked about how that we are the temple of God, and he meant that our bodies, our, our bodies themselves, these are the temple of God because the Holy Spirit lives in us. But then in the third chapter, he uses that in a different sense. 
When he says temple of God there, he's not talking about a person's body, but there he's talking about the corporate worship of the church. That when the church meets together, that God is with them. Now, the temple was a unique place place of worship in the Bible during the Old Testament. And the Old Testament temple there in Jerusalem was a place that I said the people could come together. And we know that a building like the temple in the Old Testament is not like a New Testament church. But there are some comparisons that we can make between the two. And that's because the temple that we have in the Old Testament is a type of the church that would come in the New Testament. So we want to look at next comparisons between the church and the temple. The Old Testament temple contains many of these types of the way that Christ would work through his church. Now, the first thing that we could look at when we think about both the temple and the church is the idea of preparation, that both of these had to be prepared. There was a special calling for someone to prepare the materials for the building of the temple. Now, we go back to the Old Testament and we find that this person that God used to prepare those materials was David. He desired to build the temple because he wanted a permanent place of worship. Now, as you know, the children of Israel worshipped at the tabernacle before, and that was a temporary place. The tabernacle was just a tent that could be picked up and moved, and that's what they did when the children of Israel were traveling through uh, the wilderness. They moved the tabernacle from place to place. It was a tent that could be picked up and moved. But then when Israel was in Canaan, when they were established in the promised land, there was no need to move the tabernacle any longer. And so David decided that what they should have is a permanent place of worship for the Lord Jehovah God. And so it was David's desire that he would be the one that would build this temple for the Lord. But God wouldn't allow him to build it. And I'm not going to go into the reasons for that tonight, but God would not allow David to build it. But instead, David was allowed to gather up some of the funds, to raise some funds. He was enabled to gather up some materials to wait until the time that his son Solomon came to the throne, and then Solomon would use the temples to build that building. Now, similarly, God had a plan of preparation for the church. Now, the church is not a brick-and-mortar building, and some people are very confused about that when we talk about the church we're not talking about the structure that we're in but the church is actually the people we are the people the people of god those who have covenanted together to carry out the lord's great commission we are the church but the church had to be prepared and and it's not a brick and mortar building but it was made out of something and that is it was made out of living stones and they had to be prepared now in the new testament there was a person for this preparation And his name was John the Baptist. Uh, There was a prophecy. There is prophecy concerning him in the New Testament, in the book of Luke, and also in the book of Mark. In Luke chapter 1, Luke records, and he's quoting from the Old Testament, And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And then in Mark chapter 1, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John's preparation was not of physical materials like timber and 
gold and precious stones that David gathered together for the building of the temple, but rather his was a preparation of the people of God. And those first ones that John prepared for the church was those that had covenanted together under the headship of Jesus then, and that was the 12 apostles. They were the first living stones of the first church that began in Jerusalem. Now, each of those men had been baptized by John the Baptist. In fact, to be a charter member of that first church, you had to be baptized by John the Baptist. We find that to be true by reading Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And that's where the apostles got together and appointed a person to take the place of Judas after he fell. And so in Acts 1, it tells us there, Wherefore these men, which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And so it was John that baptized the apostles. They were the first members of the church. And as we'll see a little bit later on as we get into our study, that baptism is a prerequisite for church membership. And so as David prepared physical materials for the temple, so John the Baptist prepared the spiritual materials for the building of the Lord's church. Now, secondly, in this comparison between the two, there is the dedication. And after the temple was finished, it was dedicated with sacrifices. You can read all about the dedication of it in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 7, verses 51 through chapter 8, verse number 5. And there you find that when they dedicated the temple, that there were thousands upon thousands of sacrifices that were made. There were so many sheep and oxen that were sacrificed that the number was untold. 1 Kings 8, verse 5 says, And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be told or numbered for multitude. What a sight that that must have been. Thousands upon thousands of these animals were sacrificed. Blood was freely flowing everywhere. We can't even imagine what a sight that must have been. But all of those sacrifices pointed to something, and they represented the once-for-all sacrifice that was coming, And that was the sacrifice of the Son of God, who is the precious Lamb of God without spot and without blemish. Well, that then would bring us to the dedication of the Lord's church. That when Jesus finished building his house, this spiritual house, he dedicated it with the sacrifice of himself. When his earthly ministry was over and when all the scriptures had been fulfilled about what he would do in his life, he dedicated his church with the offering of himself. Ephesians 5.25 says that Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it. And so the sacrifice that he made did what none of the other Old Testament sacrifices could do. They were types and they were shadows of what he would do on the cross. And so he came to do that. And when he sacrificed himself, he removed the sins forever of all that would believe in him. And so when Jesus assembled his church by calling out the twelve apostles, and when he had trained them, and when he had commissioned them to preach, when his earthly work and his ministry was fulfilled, all that remained for him to do was to dedicate what he had made with a sacrifice and to give it the power of his promise by that life that he gave for his people. 
Now, without that sacrifice, the church would be meaningless. We don't meet here for any other reason than because Christ gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus fulfilled that particular part of the typology, just as in the Old Testament temple, as it was dedicated with sacrifices. So we find that the church in the New Testament was dedicated by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But then there was one other thing that that happened in the Old Testament, and that was the consecration of the temple. Now, when the temple was finished and when it had been dedicated, the holy Shekinah came and filled that house with glory. This is the account that we read from 1 Kings chapter 8. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. So a cloud came and filled the temple. And that cloud was the very same cloud that had led the children of Israel through the wilderness wanderings. And it was that same cloud that came in to the Holy of Holies, and there it dwelt in a brilliant light called the Shekinah glory that was above the mercy seat, between the cherubim, on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And that was the symbol that God's house was consecrated and God was dwelling with his people. Well, that brings us to the New Testament, and we think about the church. In Acts chapter 2... The glory of God that filled the temple was a type of the coming of the Holy Spirit that would come in that second chapter of Acts. And so after Jesus had offered himself, after he had ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit came. And the Spirit empowered the church with spiritual gifts, and he made the church his habitation forever. Now, Acts 2 talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit. That was a promise that Jesus made to the disciples. He said that he would not leave them without a comforter. And so his spirit would come and he would dwell with them and he would be with them until the time that Jesus comes back for them. And so the Holy Spirit is spoken of in Scripture as being our seal. He's our guarantee. Or another way that it's put, he is our earnest, like putting down a down payment on something. The Holy Spirit's present with us, presence with us is a down payment that Christ will purchase the whole man, the whole possession, that he will even take our bodies home and glorify them and reunite them with our spirits. So that abiding presence of the Holy Spirit shows that we have been consecrated by God. So on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit did come. He descended upon the church as in the sound of a rushing mighty wind, and that's when the church was given the power to preach the gospel to all parts of the world. And it's so blessed for us because the Holy Spirit is still dwelling with us today. That after 2,000 years, he's still with us today. He meets with us collectively when we come together and assemble as his church. So all of those things are evidence that Jesus personally built the church. He followed the Old Testament pattern. The material for the living building was prepared by salvation, by baptism, And then the church was dedicated with the sacrifice of Christ and then consecrated with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And if you have a church like that, you have the church that Jesus built. So first of all, the first church must begin with Christ. Now, secondly, the true church must be a New Testament church. And with all the different denominations and with all the disagreements that there are 
between churches, how are we to determine which is the one that we ought to be a part of? And that's a very important pressing question because if the church is God's program for the world, then we're not going to have a part of that program unless we can be in the church that Christ founded, the one that has his approval. Now, I know that there are many of you that came from different denominations, and I assume that uh, the churches that you went to, you may have left there because there was a problem, but not all problems are problems that disqualify a church from being a true church. But nonetheless, there are many of them out there that are not true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not everybody is preaching the right thing. Not everybody has the right characteristics that it takes to be a church like the one that Jesus started in the New Testament. Now, there was a a great Baptist preacher of the past named Boyce Taylor who said, to be a New Testament church, a church must have been organized at the right time, at the right place, by the right person, out of the right material. It must have the right officers, the right polity, the right discipline, the right doctrine, right practices, the right gospel, and the right mission. And then he said the first missionary Baptist church complies with every one of those requirements. Now, let me qualify what Dr. Taylor said, and I'm sure that he would agree with this statement. The name that is on a church does not qualify it to be a true church. And when Dr. Taylor wrote this, he meant that the missionary Baptist church, the first missionary Baptist church, complied with all the requirements that were given in the New Testament and that we are teaching the same doctrines that Christ taught. Now, there must be churches that link to those churches in the New Testament historically Uh, The first church that was begun by Christ must maintain those same doctrines that Christ taught in order to be a New Testament church. Now, later on in the lessons, we'll show that the Baptist churches do have a link that has been established where we can prove an historical doctrinal link in every century since the time of Christ. And it's not only Baptists that say that, but many of Baptist enemies have said that down through through the years of history. And that's not to say that every church that has the name Baptist on it is a true church, because that certainly wouldn't be true. Not every church that calls itself Baptist is true. You have to look inside. You have to go down and look at the doctrines and see what that church actually teaches to tell if they are a true New Testament church. Now, let me show you, though, why some of the things and the reasons why that we're we're Baptist and we stick by that. As I've told you many times before, we have the the sign outside. We have our name on the sign for a reason that if you come here, you're going to hear us teach Baptist doctrine. That's what we teach. That's what we believe. We believe it's Bible doctrine. If we didn't, we'd be something else. And so there's a reason that we're not a Methodist and we're not Presbyterians. We're not Pentecostals. Um, We're none of those things because we think we have proof from Scripture that Baptist churches are true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, at least those that meet the requirements that we find in the New Testament and maintain that historical link to the first century. Now, the the reasons were set forth in Boyce Taylor's statement that I read just a moment ago, and so we're going to go look at, uh, look at a few of those that he, that he made and see if we can determine something from that. Now, he made the statement that in order to be a right church, the church had to have begun at the right time. So that means that the church must have come into existence when Jesus was here during his personal ministry. So that means that it must date back 2,000 years to the time of Christ. Now, if there wasn't any other criteria for us to look at, then we could rule out 
all other churches than than the Baptist church, those that have held true to those same doctrines, because, as I said a moment ago, historically, uh, people have said that there are Baptist uh, people who believe just like we as ba- this Baptist church does tonight, all the way back to the time of Christ. So you name any church that you want to name, and you'll find that all of them have started sometime later or were founded hundreds of years after the time of Christ. The Roman Catholics, although they claim to be the oldest church, there is really no history for Roman Catholicism before 300 A.D. Then the Lutherans and the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Church of Christ, the Church of God, Pentecostals, Nazarenes, name all of those, anyone, any of those that you want to name. And all of them started at least 1,500 years after the time of Christ. The Protestant Reformation was the mother of most of those churches, but the Protestants came out of the wrong church. And, and I have a hard time getting it into my mind that something that came out of something that was wrong could be right. Uh, A church has to go back to the time of Christ, not back to the time of the Protestant Reformation. So uh, these scholars agree about this, that there are people that believe like Baptists all the way back to that time. So we can confidently say that, yes, we did start at the right time. Secondly, the church must have begun in the right place. Now, we notice in Matthew 16, 18, that Jesus called it my church. And in order to be his, it had to be in the right place. Well, the right place was Palestine. The founder of the church was there. His personal ministry was there. And the church couldn't have been organized in any other place but there. The apostles that made up that first church were there. And they were baptized by John the Baptist that was there. In the Jordan River, that was there. And Peter's the one who said that nobody could company with that first church unless they had the baptism of John. And if they were going to receive his baptism then they had to be in Palestine. Now, you look at the founding of all other churches, and you find that all of them were founded in other places, either in Europe or America or some other continent. They were not founded at the right place. Thirdly, it must begin with the right person. And we've already discussed that. The right person is Jesus Christ. He's the head. He's the founder. He's the builder, the master, the proprietor. He is the sole owner of the church because he's the one who said that it is my church. And so it must be Jesus Christ that receives all the honor and the glory for building this church. And folks, he's not going to share that glory with any other. He won't share it with any of the popes. And he won't share that with Martin Luther, even though we like Martin Luther's doctrine, a lot of it. And he won't share it with John Calvin, even though we may agree with a lot of things that John Calvin said. But Christ doesn't share his glory with men. He won't share it with John Wesley or Alexander Campbell or any others. If a church was not founded by Christ, then it was not founded by the right person. Now, fourthly, it must begin with the right material. Who were those lively stones that made up the first spiritual house? Well, again, we've also talked about that. They were members of that church that had been baptized by John the Baptist. The apostles had John's baptism. And they were commanded in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 to go out to make converts and to baptize them. So that baptism was started by John, but it was started under the direct authority of God himself. I was asked that question not too long ago. Where did John get his baptism? Well, that's the very question that Jesus confounded the Pharisees with. He said, you tell me where John got his baptism, and I'll tell you where I came from. 
Well, Jesus' answer to all of this is that John's baptism came directly from God. And that's the baptism that was passed on to the apostles when they baptized. And then when they became a church, the authority then goes out from under the church. So we have the same baptism that has come down to us today. But there's also something else that's significant about that statement. In order to have the right material for the building of the church, then it must be those that are saved. Now, in the Scriptures, we read that those that were saved were baptized, and then they were added to the church. Now, this is what the Great Commission says. It says for us to go and let's make disciples. That means we are to get them saved. Then we are to baptize them. And no one was ever added to the church that was not baptized. So if you have a church that baptizes people in order to save them and then to get them into the church, then you would have a church that's made up of the wrong material. Catholics baptize infants. They do that in order to wash away original sin. Protestants baptize babies in order to make them a part of the covenant community of the church. But the scriptures, I think, are very clear about this. You can't baptize anyone that has not personally trusted Christ. If you do, then you make a church out of the wrong material. The material must be right. They must be regenerated people and then baptized, and then they become members of the church. Now, fifthly, it must have the right officers. The right church must have the right officers. Well, the only description of officers that we have for the church in the New Testament is pastors and deacons. Now, the pastor is sometimes referred to as a bishop, but that's not a different office. That's just talking about the ecclesiastical authority. It refers to official duties. Sometimes the pastor is referred to as an elder, and that is also the same office. That simply means the, the respect that's afforded to him because of that office. So Baptists, or rather bishops, pastors, elders, that's all the same term, and that is one office that we have in the church. Well, that means that we can't have a pope, and that means we can't have any cardinals, and we can't have blue jays, and right reverends, and left reverends, and potentates, or anything else. All we can have are pastors and deacons, because that's the only thing given to us in the New Testament. So what are the officers of a Baptist church? pastors and deacons then it must have the right polity polity is a word that means government the government of the church has to be right in order to be a new testament church now according to the new testament example the government of the church is to be democratic that is it's congregational that we are under the headship of christ and that we derive our authority from christ and from the words of god that are written in the bible Now, conversely to that, the Roman Catholics believe that it is the church that gives the Bible its authority. The Bible gives, or rather, the church gives authority to the Bible, and if that's true, then the Bible doesn't have to be the only rule of faith and practice. But in the Baptist church, we take our authority from the Bible because the Bible is the infallible word of God. And so we don't make laws. Baptist churches don't make laws. We don't have councils. We we don't exercise authority to do anything that's outside of the written word of God. And so we can't decide things like the Pope is infallible. We can't believe that because the Bible doesn't teach that. 
We don't have all this religious tomfoolery that canonizes saints and grants entrance into heaven of people that have come out of this imaginary place that's called purgatory. We can't have that because the Bible doesn't teach that. We don't change wine into the blood of Christ or bread into the body of Christ because the Bible does not teach that. We don't have authority for that. We don't tell people that the way that you are absolved from your sins is to go into a confessional booth and then we'll give you some penance to do and then perhaps you'll get enough done that your sins will be taken away from you. We can't do that because that's not in the Bible. We achieve our authority, receive authority from the Word of God and from no other place. And so we're not going to make any kinds of rules or laws or establish any traditions as a rule in faith and practice if it's not found in the Word of God. So we're not going to do anything that supersedes the Word of God. We don't pass any of these laws. We only accept what's in the written Word as our final authority. Well, there's a great contrast between the polity of Baptist churches and others. Uh, In other churches, the will of the people and the local assembly is often supplanted by a higher person, by a different authority, by another group. But in a Baptist church like Berean Baptist, the authority is here. There is no other authority. There is no higher authority. We receive our directions directly from our head, who is Jesus Christ. So the decisions that are made here as a church have no appeal. You can't take a a decision that's made here and take it to somebody else and say, would you overthrow that? I don't think that that was right. Would you do something different? You can't do that because the local assembly is the highest authority. It doesn't go anyplace else. The only place it can go is to Jesus Christ himself. So the decisions that we make here are final. And unless God tells us to change them, we don't change them. Now, the seventh characteristic of a true church is that it must have the right gospel. Now, this is extremely important because there is so much of a false gospel being preached today. The Apostle Paul warned about that in the first of Galatians. He he said that there there's another gospel out there. There's another gospel that's not the true gospel. So to be a true church, you have to have the true gospel. Well, what is that? Well, that would be faith in Jesus Christ alone. The right gospel says that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried in the tomb, that three days later he arose from the grave and he ascended back to heaven. The right gospel says that the perfect life of Christ and the shedding of his blood on the cross is all that's needed for our salvation. The right gospel puts all of our hope, all of our dependence, all confidence, all faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross and nothing that we do. The right gospel does not depend upon grace and works because grace and works are mutually exclusive principles. They don't work together in the word of God. It's oil and water. Now, there is a purpose for each of those, but they're not the purpose of the law. It's not our salvation. So we can't do anything to earn it. The right gospel says that Jesus Christ is the only answer for the sinful condition of man. That we must come to him rejecting our sins, asking God for his forgiveness, relying on Christ and him alone for our salvation. And that's the part of the gospel that is so lost today because there are people in churches preaching today that you can get to heaven in other ways. That Jesus Christ is just one of the ways that you get to heaven. 
And how many times have you heard people say, if you'll just be sincere, if you'll just believe in the God that you believe in, then you can get to heaven. That stands opposed to the entire Word of God. And anything that's against the Word of God is against Christ. And anything that is against Christ cannot be true. He is truth. Truth and grace came by Jesus Christ. The church is not a soup kitchen. It's not a house of entertainment. The church is a place to make saved people out of lost people and to train them to do the same. That's what church is. Now, there might be all kinds of other good works that are involved, but the main mission of the church is this, that we have a missionary zeal as our primary focus and that we want to win people to Jesus Christ. And if a church is not that, it's not the kind of church that Jesus built. So the New Testament church has to follow the order that Christ gave us. He said that we need to do evangelism. In Acts chapter 1, he said you need to go into Jerusalem, and that would be Rohnert Park. And you need to go into Judea, that would be California, and go into Samaria, all the other states of the United States, and then go to the rest of the world, and that would be all the other countries that we have in the world today. And if we leave any of that out, then we have not fulfilled the mission that Christ gave the church. Now, the first church that was organized in Jerusalem by Jesus was very highly dedicated to that command. And because of their witness, millions of people have believed the gospel, and it's because of their witness that we're right here in this church tonight. And the power that they had in the gospel is not lost We still have that power today. We still have the Holy Spirit in us today. And so that same gospel that reached the entire known world at their time in the first century has the same power to reach the world today. We just need the witnesses to give it out, to tell people about it. And so we can't be a true church of Christ unless we keep that missionary zeal. Now, what church is it then that meets all of those requirements? What church can claim to be a church that Jesus built? Well, historically, I've already told you that true Baptist churches meet that requirement. It's not the name that makes us. It's the doctrines that we teach. That's what makes us a true church. And so we are connected to the true church by the right time of organization, by the, at the right place, by the right person, out of the right material, with the right officers, with the right polity, with right discipline, right doctrine, right practices, right gospel, and we have the right mission. And I would have to say that there shouldn't be any child of God who wants to be a member of a church that is not true to the doctrines that are taught in the New Testament. Why would you want to be a member of a church that's not true to the same principles and doctrines that Christ gave us in the beginning? Why should we be faithful to that? One very good reason. God's word is unchangeable. There is no doctrine that Christ started that can be manipulated and changed around to say something else that Christ didn't mean for it to say. Those doctrines are the very same as they were given. And that's because God's word endures forever. God's word never passes away. And so we pray for this, that we will be true to God's word and that we will continue to serve him as faithful members of his church. Now, we're going to talk about a lot of these things as we go through. We'll expand on some of these things. I've identified several different areas that we want to talk about church. And so I think it's going to be a good study for us. But we have to start here. 
let's make sure we're in the church where we ought to be studying this. That's a very important piece of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we spend together tonight. Lord, we are so thankful that we have the privilege of being in a place where the Word of God is taught. And Lord, um, there are so many people out there who have disregarded the Word of God altogether. They, they don't even bother with, with reading the Word of God in church any longer. Uh, they don't pay any attention to the doctrines that are taught. And uh, people just want to get together, have one big happy family with disregard to what is truth. Lord, we pray that you would lead us into truth. There's only one way that people can be saved, and that is to believe what is truth. And there's only one, and that's in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being a member of your church. And Lord, we just pray that you'd bless us and strengthen us as we go about doing what you have commanded in the New Testament. Thank you for all these things. We praise your wonderful name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org